three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus some of these people. Put down um, your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by best-selling author, professor, behavior scientist, and founder of the Stanford Behavior Design Lab, Dr. B.J. Fogg. We'll be exploring issues including the evolutionary advantage to habits and whether other animals exhibit them, how habits make multitasking possible, the incentive shift from extrinsically motivated behavior to intrinsically motivated behavior, the tiny habits recipe to adopting new behaviors, and finally, how Dr. Fogg is using the principles of behavior design on projects ranging from screen time reduction to climate action. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. Hey guys, hope you're all having an amazing day and week as you're uh, as you're listening to this. By the time this episode comes out, I think the general population should be just about ready to, to start receiving vaccines. I know in Washington D.C., um, the the registration for um, for non-essential populations to get the vaccine, I think, was March 10th. So by the time uh, this episode drops, we should have a, a decent amount of people uh, get vaccinated, which is very promising heading into the summer. We might have a little bit of re- return to normalcy. I know my law school's already sort of, you know, planning, uh, making plans for the fall, and I'm hoping hoping that it'll be in person because it's kind of crazy to think about, you know. Uh, I mean, f- for me, for example, my first two years of law school of of that of the um, four semesters, really three of them were virtual. So I've I've spent more time, you know, at Zoom law school than in real law school. And and I'm sure folks listening have had similar experiences. I have friends who have started jobs and they've never met their coworkers. They've never been to the office. Uh, so hopefully, you know, in the summer and the fall, things will be uh, will be back to normal. Uh, whatever whatever that's going to look like. I want to give a shout out. I want to sort of at the beginning of the episode, I want to give a shout out to uh, all of my listeners in India. I um, I realized just sort of combing through uh, the the listenership, the audience, the pod that there are a fair amount of people listening to the podcast uh, around uh, Mumbai and, and uh, Delhi using the the Ghana uh, streaming service. So to all those listening in India, thank you so much for for tuning in. Um, I don't know how you found Nervous Habits, but I'm I'm really glad that you did and that you that you've stuck with the pod <laughs> over the last couple of years. Um, so this week I want to sort of revisit a topic that I've discussed in the pod a couple times before, but but do it in a different way because I've spoken about habits uh, a number of times. I talked about in the first one of the first episodes of the podcast. Talked about. Charles Duhigg's Q routine reward framework for habit formation. And then I had Adrian Shepard talk about t- habits insofar as they relate to time management. But this week, uh, I, I, you know, I want to have a guest on who has, who has sort of a, a revolutionary approach to, to instilling new habits. And it starts on the smallest possible scale, um, his conception of tiny habits. And then when you actually take those tiny habits and you you amalgate them, you, you you know, you you stack them on top of each other, then you can actually bring about large scale behavior change. And in the course of this conversation, we end up talking about habits as simple as doing a couple squats every morning while you wait for your coffee to, uh, to get ready to as large as 
trying to alleviate the damage that we've done to the environment and reducing our screen time on our cell phones. So it, it sort of, you know, it's a testament to the fact that that these small habits can, can certainly go a long way. And I'm really excited for my, my guest this week. If you haven't heard of Dr. BJ Fogg, he did a, a TED Talk a couple of years ago. I think this might have been the first time I came across him. Uh, it was uh, Forget Big Change, Start With a Tiny Habit. Um, really terrific. Uh, you, you should check that out. And then, of course, he wrote the best-selling book, Tiny Habits to Small Changes That Change Everything, um, which I read. I, I sort of inhaled um, his book, uh, James Clear Clear's book, Atomic Habits, and Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. Um, and they're all very different, but I found B.J. Fogg's uh, methodologies to be practical and also actionable. Um, you know, and, and you'll hear in this conversation, mo- most of what he recommends isn't, you know, isn't setting aside an hour every day to do something until it sticks. It's 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 something that, that can be done in, in just a second, right? So before we hear from uh, BJ Fogg, just a little more about his background. So Dr. BJ Fogg is a behavior scientist at Stanford. He actually directs research and innovation at the Behavior Design Lab, which he uh, founded, and he teaches uh, his models and methods in graduate seminars as well at Stanford. Um, BJ trains innovators to use his work so that they can create solutions that influence behavior. The focus areas include health, sustainability, financial well-being, learning, productivity, and engagement. And we actually do talk a lot about his work at the Behavioral Design Lab in this episode. Um, Also, his early work on persuasive technology informed the design of products that millions love and use every day, including Instagram, which one of his students co-founded. BJ created a new method of habit formation called Tiny Habits, and using his online platform and email, he's personally coached over 40,000 people in creating habits. Fortune Magazine named him a new guru you should know for his insights about mobile and social networks. So BJ's work has been incredibly influential. Uh, as I said, his students have gone on to do remarkable things, and we'll talk about um, another one of his students, uh, Tristan Harris, who founded the Center for Humane Technology during a conversation, but um, had an impact on a lot of people. Uh, and you know, his research and innovation has been cited thou- tens of thousands of times, as well as the behavior model changing the lives of millions of people. So definitely listen closely to what BJ has to say. And without further ado, my conversation with Dr. BJ Bach. Dr. BJ Fogg, welcome to Nervous Habits. Thank you for inviting me, Ricky. I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Um, over the last 10, 15 years, there's been so much written about um, habits. I think there's like an explosion mm, of interest Renaissance. in habits. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, think, I think you're right. And it was like 10 or 15 years ago where habits was considered mostly a negative word, negatively valenced, and that has shifted. Absolutely. I mean, you look at uh, in 2012, The Power of Habit, uh, which you reference in the book, Charles Duhigg, James Clear wrote Atomic Habits. This podcast is called Nervous Habits. Um, what do you think, if you had to sort of point to something, BJ, really accounts for this this renaissance that you mentioned in interest in habits? I would say Power, uh, power of Habit, Duhigg's book, got people thinking about habits in more positive ways. I think that's one of the contributions of the book. I And I sense that it was negative because before his book came out, My sister and I did work for Weight Watchers, training them in behavior design, and they subsequently streamlined and improved their program. But part of it was they refused to use the word habits in their new program, and they used the word routine instead. And we had that discussion, and that kind of made me go, oh, so people mostly think bad habits with habits. And then Power of Habit, because it was such a big book, and so many influential people read it, I think it shifted it more and more toward the positive side of things. 
It's amazing that the word that you use to connote what what the activity is has such an impact on on how people perceive it and what motivates them. Um, are there any specific habits in your life, BJ, that you struggle to break? I know for me, I have not been able to stop biting my nails since I was like 12 years old. Yeah. Um, yes, it's a general habit. It's not a specific one, but the general habit of working too much, which a lot of us have, and those of you who don't have it might think uh, you're just bragging about working too much. No, we're really not. It is a problem uh, because it means you are not optimizing other parts of your life that you could be like relationships and self-care and hobbies and so on. So th that is has long been my biggest challenge. I love, love, love what I do. And I would work every day, all day on research and teaching and writing and helping people but i just know that i need so i i'm i'm always struggling to prioritize effectively and then also to find that balance where i have a, enough time for me and my family and friends interesting so, so sort of like like a general for you it's just a general trend and and spending you know too much time working that you think yeah. is a habit yeah um, if you had to sort of define, like, like quantify a habit for listeners that are maybe less familiar with the literature, is there sort of like a golden number? Like if you're trying to eat healthy, for example, is it, you know, if you eat a salad every day for a couple of weeks, then it becomes a habit is, you know, how, how do you define uh, sort of that bright line? What a good question. Well, first of all, the word habit is ambiguous. It's a mess. So, um, even when somebody says the word habit, you can't be sure of what they're referring to. The way Stephen Covey talks about habits and the seven habits of highly effective people, I don't consider those habits. I consider those general practices. When I think of habit, I think of a very specific behavior such as I put MCT oil in my coffee. Mm -hmm. That's very specific. And that's why earlier I qualified the habit I gave you as kind of a general habit. Uh, a more specific one would be, oh, I you know, get up at four in the morning and I start working, that would be a specific habit where the more general version is I work too much. Whereas even at a higher, more general level, I think that's what Covey is and others talk about. So number one, understand everybody that the word habit is an ambiguous word and you've got to kind of read into the context or just ask people, what do you mean by habit? In terms of general understanding about habits, that landscape is also a mess which is why one reason I wrote the book, Tiny Habits, was to define and clarify. And there's a lot of um, conventional wisdom around habits that is not wisdom, it's actually wrong, wrong. And that's the idea, you know, things like, oh, you only can create one habit at a time. That's not true. That repetition creates habits. That's not true. That you have to um, make yourself accountable to create a habit. That's not true. There's a whole bunch of stuff like that. It's just simply not true or only partially true. And so what I hope people listening, whenever you hear anything about habits, really scrutinize it. And even if people say it's science-backed or science-based, look at the study. And if you look at the study about repetition creating habits, you'll see it does not say that, okay? So even though people say science shows, dig in and read the study. So. I know most people aren't actually gonna do that. So instead, maybe just take away that whenever anybody makes a claim about habits, mm -hmm. 
be skeptical. Don't just think everything's true that you're hearing. It, it makes it makes perfect sense, sort of, you know, have that cautious skepticism in, in what you're hearing. I'll say that the reason why I asked the question about quantifying habits, BJ, is because as a law student, there's actually a rule of evidence. It's really interesting. So generally, character evidence is inadmissible. Let's say there's someone slips on the, you know, on the floor of the supermarket. If the employee says, sometimes I clean up the mess, that's not admissible in, in, as a rule of evidence. But if the, if the employee says, I have a habit of always cleaning up this aisle every Monday at two o'clock. All of a sudden, that's that's admissible. So there is sort of like, at least legally, there is sort of uh, an inherent uh, believability, a legitimacy that comes with habits, um, which is why I asked the question about like, like whether or not there was a number that you could give for something to be considered a habit in like general life. Unfortunately, there's not. There, the way... The best way to think about habits is how automatically do you do it? Mm. How much do you do it without deciding or deliberating? And that's a spectrum. And there's no, as you think about the spectrum from I'm making a decision to where I'm doing it fully automatically along that continuum, there's no line or moment that says now it is a habit. Right. And so it's a matter of degree. And that's just the reality. Got you, got you. And I, I want to talk about in, in a couple minutes the fog behavioral model because I think that's that that'll be really interesting for listeners. But sort of taking a step back, thinking about like human evolution, BJ. What's the what's the utility? What's the evolutionary advantage to habits? What, why do people have them? Yeah. Well, other people have spoken to this and written about this better than I have. Um, but it makes us efficient and it makes us reliable, um, and it frees us up to do things that either we want to be more spontaneous about or requires more creativity or requires innovation. I mean, it's really helpful to be on autopilot for so many things, like the way you brush your teeth, automate that, you know, and don't be thinking, oh, which molar do I start with? And then do I go to this one? And don't be deciding because as that's automated, you could be doing something else. Like for example, right now I'm doing squats while I brush my teeth because I'm working <laughs> on these really deep squats. So there is, but you don't want everything to be automated. You don't want everything to be a habit. So part of everyone's life, if you're deliberate about it, is where's that balance between things that I just can do without thinking and I do automatically and those things that I am deliberate about and that I'm creative or spontaneous around. And, mm. you know, where's that balance? It's going to be different for each person, but you don't want everything to be a habit. So when you talk about automatic processes, I'm thinking, you know, listeners have heard about multitasking or task switching, how it's impossible to pay attention in class while watching YouTube. You're always going back and forth. If it's a habit, if it's, you know, talking on the phone while cooking, if it's something you can do automatically, then does it become possible to task switch? I think there are times when we can multitask and it's good. It is probably my late dissertation advisor, Cliff Nass, <laughs> that started the ball rolling against multitasking. Mm. And I, I think if you look back, so this was a line of research he started after I left his lab and started my own. The funny thing about that is Cliff Nass was the biggest multitasker <laughs> you could like ever encounter. And so it's funny that he would take on multitasking on one research and provide some evidence that's like, oh, this is a really bad idea. Since, oh my gosh, I remember like being in his office talking to him and he was at the same time fiddling with his shoelace, responding to somebody else's email and talking to me about an experiment design. 
Mm. And he was doing all of it fine. I didn't feel very supported at times. And it's like, uh, Cliff, I'm here now. Um, but let me get some examples of when I think it can work. Right now, Clubhouse is reaching more and more people. Clubhouse is a way that you can have a live audio discussion, kind of like talk radio. And you can just start your own channels or join or listen or speak. And if you're just listening on Clubhouse, it's a terrific time to tidy your house, to lift dumbbells, to um, you know, wipe down your bathroom sink. So what's, at least the way I think about it, the part of my brain that's listening in Clubhouse is not the part of my brain that it takes to do squats or wipe down my kitchen sink. And in fact, if I were just only sitting and listening at Clubhouse, it would drive me bonkers because mm. the information's not coming fast enough. Mm -hmm. So at least for me, don't share this with Clubhouse founders. One is my former student that founded Clubhouse. At least, but I've heard the other Clubhouse founder talk about it. Oh yeah, multitask as you listen. So I don't think it's a hard and fast rule that we can't multitask. Um, I'm sure there's a more sophisticated way. And I think about it, if it's like using the same part of my brain, like email, doing email and talking to you, not a good idea. I'm gonna be bad at both of those things, but talking to you and stretching my calves. Yeah, I'm doing that right now. I'm at my stand-up desk, stretching my calves. Mm. And then imagine people listening to this podcast right now might be, you know, doing dishes, uh, running, li lifting weights at the gym. It's sort of like you said, the assignment of responsibility to different divisions of yeah. the brain. This division can focus on paying attention. This division can focus on, you know, moving your arms and legs. I think that's relatable. <laughs> yes. And if you're listening to this, please do not, and you're driving, please oh, do not tap into that part of your brain that allows you to drive safely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned a moment ago, you talked about how in terms of human evolution, there's an efficiency reason for habits. So based on that premise, you know, why don't we see habit, uh, habits in other animals or, or do we do? You know? Oh, we do. We do. We do. We do. Okay. So how does that work? Um, I live in California. I live on a river here in Maui. I live really close to the ocean and I surf every morning. So absolutely. I know where the turtles hang out very reliably. And they've probably done that for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I can just walk over. It's about two minutes from where I live. They have a habit of being there. Um, on the river, there's a habit of when the deer come by, like every night, it's pretty reliable, even birds and so on. So yeah, animals definitely have this. And in fact, three mornings ago, a monk seal swam up to us, three of us out surfing. <gasps> and... I'd never seen, well, I saw a monk seal on shore, but I'd never seen one in the water. And they're endangered, they're the Hawaiian estate mammal. And because it swam up that morning and then actually went and got a fish and brought it up to one of the surfers, it's like, what? Like fish sharing. The next two mornings I was out there thinking, okay, maybe this monk seal is gonna have the habit or routine of coming by. It didn't happen, mm. but definitely um, animals certainly, 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 have habits and those habits wire in, I would say in the same way that our habits wire in, we do a behavior, we feel successful. Oh, I, you know, a little, um, the monk seal catches a fish in this place in Maui, that monk seal feels successful. The monk seal going back to that place is going to be more automatic hmm. because as opposed to the monk seal wandered around, let's say West Maui, didn't find anything that's going to be less likely to go back there. So mm. the, the feeling of success 
that emotion is what I say in humans wires and habits. And there's, you know, clear evidence for that and tons of practical examples, but for animals too, I'm going to go out on a limb here that they have emotions and the one I'm going on a limb here. This is not my area, but it stands to reason that when a monk seal is looking for fish and she or he finds a fish in this location, something in their brain goes, boom, success, mm. which causes them to return to that the next time they're feeling hungry. If that you, wasn't the case, what would have happened to all these animals? They would have died away. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it'd, it'd be an interesting area of, of study if, if there's anyone listening who maybe has more, more knowledge in, in the animal psychology field, maybe with like seagulls and French fries, or, you know, I don't know if you have a dog, BJ, if you've tried yeah, out the dogs, tiny rats and mazes. But yeah, the most obvious example is look at how you get your dog to do something automatically. You treat them, you give them a symbol of success, something that, you know, the emotion. Mm. And I avoided in my book, Tiny Habits, talking about dog training and reinforcing your dogs as very similar to how we reinforce ourselves for habits. But guess what? I think it's the same process. Um, th th that's, that's a nice segue into, into the tiny habits behavior model. So for folks who haven't yet read the book, um, what, what's sort of the essence of, of the approach? Cause it's very simple. Um, yeah. which I think it's, it's to its credit. What's the essence of the tiny habits behavior approach? Three things. Take whatever habit you want and make it really, really tiny, really simple, like ridiculously simple. Um, so for example, if you want the habit of writing thank you notes every morning, rather than writing an entire note, maybe all you do is I'm gonna list the name of somebody I wanna write a thank you note to, make it tiny. Next, find where it fits naturally in your life. So where does writing thank you notes fit naturally? Oh, maybe I after I get my morning coffee. So after I get my morning coffee, I, and sit down, then the tiny habit recipe comes after I sit down with my morning coffee, I will write the name of one person to whom I could write a thank you note. Hmm. And then the third part is the emotion part. You wire it in by causing yourself to feel successful. And in tiny habits, I call that celebration, that technique. There's a whole bunch of ways to do it, but it's anything you do that causes you to feel successful. So as I'm writing the name down of my friend, Dorothy, I might think, good for you, BJ. You know, and I might even do just a, a fist pump, like, yep, you are stepping up and you're expressing your appreciation of this person who matters. Another type of celebration is just to focus very clearly on your higher purpose. And if my higher purpose is to um, bring joy into people's lives, so as I write the name Dorothy, I might think, good for you. You are going to bring joy into Dorothy's life and that's so important to you. Now in this, I actually didn't write the thank you note. So, mm. cause writing a thank you note is not tiny, but what you can do in tiny habits is you can make the starter step. Like the first thing, identify who I'm going to write the note to as the habit. And then you can do more if you want. But if in that morning you're not feeling like writing the thing, thank you, note, fine, don't do it. But most mornings you will. Uh, for something like drinking water, you might just take a sip of water. And if you want to do more, you can, but scale it back. Because guess what? Drinking a whole glass of water for most people is not tiny enough. Mm. So you find something so simple and tiny that even when you're rushed or you're not feeling good or you're just not in the mood, you can still do it. So you can be super reliable getting 
the tiny version done. And then on the days when you want to do more, even on day one, man, you could write 10 thank you notes on day one if you want, but you don't raise the bar. The habit is always just write down the name of one person who I could write a thank you note to. I like that you you described it as a starter step because I think listeners can relate to that that you know intimidating feeling of just starting an activity. You think about going to the gym. Once you're there, everyone says this. Once you're there, it's easy. It's just taking the first step into the gym. Same thing with the thank you note. You think about how daunting it is to have to sit down and and but just writing the name, taking that starter step, BJ. I think that makes a big difference for people. Yeah, there are two patterns here, and I haven't named them, and maybe somebody will after hearing this. But the patterns are. The first step is automated and then you decide. I show up at the gym and then once I'm at the gym, it's like, okay, what workout am I doing today? Okay, the next is the opposite where the first is a decision and then you just go into automatic mode. Mm. Um, let me give an example of that, a real example of that. Um, oh, it might be cleaning your house. So first you decide which bathroom I, am I gonna clean and once you decide, you've got the whole cleaning thing just automated. You could be listening to this or a clubhouse or whatever. So notice that in our behaviors, sometimes it's just not a pure habit. There, and this is a big part of my work, just a little bit in tiny habits, but more in my Stanford lab where we're looking at how behaviors happen over time. And even though these patterns, like it's automated, then you decide, or it's a decision, then you go into automation mode. Something as simple and straightforward as that has not been named as far as I know. So there's a whole bunch of innovation still left to be done around human behavior and characterizing how it happens and also giving guidance on how to create behaviors that will make people happier and healthier. A lot of work left to be done. Absolutely. And, and, and you actually, in the book, um, you, you sort of streamline this process in, in doing using the ABC approach, the anchor, the tiny behavior, and the celebration. So um, how might that look in, in, in practice? I mean, uh, in, in maybe someone that wants to relax or, or someone that wants to get into a, an organizational routine. Yeah, I have three. So I call them recipes, mm -hmm. the way you design it. And there's 300 in the back of the Tiny Habits book. After I start the coffee, I will do three deep squats. That's one of mine. After I pee, I will do two push-ups. That's one of mine. After I get on a Zoom call, I will start stretching my calves. Hmm. Uh, after I get on the road to come home from surfing, I will call my parents. So what you have is this first phrase, after I, that's something you already do. You know, I already get on Zoom calls. I already start the coffee maker. I already brush my teeth. Um, and then you anchor, I call it anchoring. Other people have taken the term and renamed it, but it's the same concept. They call it stacking. I like anchoring because you're attaching the new habit to something that's firm, you know, coffee and, you know, peeing and getting on Zoom. Right. And then you, you just, so that's a recipe. So uh, so after I pull under the road, I will call my mom. So the new habit is calling my mom. And the celebration, the C, is the emotional piece to wire in the habit. Once that behavior becomes automatic, once it becomes habit, you don't have to celebrate anymore. The purpose of celebration is to cause your brain to rewire, make it automatic. And then you're left with the tiny habit recipe that boom, you pull on the highway, 
you'll just, bam, your brain will remember, call your mom and I'll say, uh, you know, usually I say, hey, Siri, call my mom. Mm. <laughs> and then it says, oh, it's going to happen right now. Don't do it Sorry, right now. I don't know. I, I, oh. I, do the, I do the same thing with Siri all the time. So um, anyways, this one's a little more complicated because mm. I have to decide. So I always call my parents, but then I decide which parent and I have to think back, who did I call yesterday? Yeah. They're, they're sitting there in the same room, but I don't want to like be playing favorites. Right? <laughs> so there is that. A habitual remembering of calling my parents, and then I decide which one is it that I call today. You know what's funny in listening to hear, you know, listening to you explain this formula. I'm realizing that, and I'm sure listeners are also having the same thought. Um, these are things that I think we do without even putting a name to them. Like I'm thinking every time I leave my building and go on a walk, I will instinctively call my parents. Every time ah. I I heat, you know, I go to uh, prepare my salad, I'll instinctively put on a podcast. Um, you know, trying to learn something something different. Or um, you know, every time I I finish doing activity, I'm going to start flossing. So I think a lot of people have incorporated these these tiny habits, but maybe they don't realize it. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's patterns. There are. I mean, so after coaching, so I started coaching people in tiny habits in 2011, after mm -hmm. doing a year of it on my own and with my Stanford students to some extent, and then personally coaching two to 300 people a week, every day, and a new set of people every week and measuring the results every week, there are patterns. There's definitely things that work and don't. And that shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, human behavior all comes down to motivation, ability, and prompt. And there are ways that behavior sequences happen. And there are certain patterns that are successful for creating habits and so on. So a big part of my work is systematizing the entire landscape of behavior, mm -hmm. including ha habits. And what's exciting is it is a system. It's not like behavioral economics is not a system. It's random principles, random dynamics. And there's no underlying system or theory or principle. But when you with my work, what I call behavior design. Behavior design is a systematic set of models and methods. And that means you can design for the habits you want or the outcomes you want. And you can figure it out. There are patterns and you can design for those patterns. And that gives you a huge sense of hope and empowerment you can achieve anything, right? I mean, you really, well, almost anything. I mean, you can, I can't like fly to Molokai by flapping my arms, but I could certainly get to Molokai tomorrow morning and, and snorkel if I wanted to. So once you see the patterns and once you know how to design for them successfully and the things open up. VJ, you don't watch the Big Bang Theory, do you? Some, some. So there was an episode, just because listening to your, hear you talk about behavior design, there was an episode where Sheldon, uh, the lead character, wanted to socially engineer Penny, that's Leonard's girlfriend, to get her to, to perform, you know, to get her to, to uh, get rid of her la obnoxious laugh and, you know, talk in a lower pitched voice, so, or a higher pitched voice, so he would Ooh, give her chocolates. He would give her chocolates every time, uh, every time she did something um, worthy of positive reinforcement. And over time, he's able to change her behavior. So did it's it dangerous. work in the show? It did work in the show. So you got to wield this power for good and not for evil. Yes, definitely for good. I mean, I like young Sheldon. I think I've watched all of young Sheldon because I get a huge kick out of that. Yeah, I mean, there was a time in my Stanford lab, uh, I think it was about 2003, where we were looking at the inbox problem. 
the overwhelming inbox. So we built a technology and it would live in Outlook. You can't do this anymore in Outlook. That every time you took something out of your inbox, it would pop up a photo that would bring back a good memory. And the other lab members would stalk your photo pool, like they'd contact your parents and your relatives and say, hey, send me some cool photos of BJ or people BJ love or BJ's pets. And they would put it in my little treasure box. And every time I'd take an email out of my inbox, whether I deleted it or moved it, one of these photos would pop up as a reinforcer. We also played around with eating a little bit of chocolate every time you took um, something out of your inbox. So, and then that gets really just right to behaviorism and behaviorism is powerful, but behavior design is much more than behaviorism. It's not just behaviorism in a new, with uh, a new phrase around it. Right. Right. It, it, it's interesting. This sort of falls into what I wanted to talk about with motivation, because um, something I, I think people often think about is this distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Some things we do just because they're fun, like like mm-hmm. I enjoy playing chess and some things we do for the end result, like, you know, me going to law school. And I wonder if it's easier to adopt positive habits, BJ, towards things that we naturally like. So chess, for example, rather than things that we don't, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And that's part of the tiny habits method is pick new habits that you want, not the ones you feel like you should have. Mm -hmm. Now, graduating from law school is an outcome and you can create habits to achieve the outcome. And then playing chess every day can be a habit if you can arrange for either a person or a computer to play with you. Um, So sometimes you want the outcome enough that you will create habits you don't love, like studying, in order to get there, which can happen in a limited time period of way. Um, but as soon as you achieve the degree, you're probably not going to be studying. That habit's going to go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, people want a paycheck. Most people want a paycheck. And they may have jobs they don't like. It's too bad if that's the case. Find a job you like. But sometimes <laughs> you have to take jobs you don't like. Yeah. And so you will go to work on a regular basis. You might call it a habit, but as soon as you stop getting the paycheck, you're not going to continue to like go to work. Most people, I would, because I love my job. I would do it even if I had to pay to do it, which sometimes seems like the case, but. Hopefully your employees um, aren't listening. (laughs) Stanford. Anyway. um, So yes, if, but for most habits that people are thinking about, or most outcomes that people want, like you want to be fitter, find find an exercise or an activity that you love, like me and surfing. Ah, I love it. I get fitter because of it, but I just love surfing. In another context, if I were jogging, I don't like jogging. So that would be like a really bad habit for me to try to form. So there's many ways to get fitter. Find the habits that you like and that you enjoy and don't try to force habits you don't like upon yourself. I wonder if it's possible though, sort of taking the opposite approach. If you do embark on a habit that you don't like, for example, learning a foreign language, let's say you Mm want to learn German and you do it for long enough, BJ, maybe eventually you'll you'll begin to do it because you want to, you're intrinsically motivated as opposed to the extrinsic motivation. Does that ever happen? Yeah. Yeah, I call that the incentive shift. Mm -hmm. And again, It's not been named. It's not been characterized. I don't even think I've published anything on the incentive shift. An example for my life is playing the piano. Okay. So my mom's a musician. 
sing in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. She put on these huge musicals. I mean, she's gifted. I did not get that gift, but she knew the value of me playing the piano, I suppose. So I was forced, I was bribed, I was cajoled, I was manipulated into practicing the piano as a young person and I hated it. But then, and this was pretty much, it took until I went to college. Then somehow I got good enough that I actually liked playing the piano. And so I have a piano right here. And then in California, I have a piano in each of the houses there. And so the way that works is if there's something that can motivate you to get through the initial period, an incentive that gets you through that initial period until something shifts, until the motivation shifts, that can work. But that kind of pattern, I mean, it took my mom manipulating my motivation in massive ways for years. And for most people creating your own habits, it's really hard to manipulate your own motivation for years. So don't count on that working. Uh, but that is a pattern that happens. And I call it the incentive shift. Hmm. That's really interesting. <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, to being forced by their parents to do something at a young age. And then even without their parents' influence later on in life, they just continue doing it because of that, that sort of like uh, ingrained. And, and, and Ricky, when I was young, I was saying, my mom would say, you will thank me someday for this. And I was like, mom, I will never thank you yeah. for making me play the piano. And how many times have I thanked her? Oh, probably 20 or 30. <laughs> <laughs> she um, was right. At the same thing with eating vegetables, you know, as a kid, it's, it's something, ah, like, I, I don't need to do this, but then you do it for long enough, then you're an adult. And that's, and I actually love vegetables. Um, I actually eat more vegetables more mm, now in adulthood mm. than I did as a kid. But um, in any event, BJ, you know, you mentioned earlier that you work uh, with behavior design at, at Stanford. So um, sort of taking like the holistic approach, you know, you work with students on tackling the biggest behavioral uh, changes in society. Is this, would you define this as like the conglomeration of a million tiny habits? How would you characterize this work? Yeah, thank you for the question. Behavior design is a phrase we came up with in 2010 to describe what my lab was doing. It was no longer persuasive technology and we knew we weren't going back to that. So, uh, so we called it behavior design and behavior design is a set of models and a set of methods one of those methods is tiny habits. So behavior design is the big umbrella. Mm -hmm. Underneath it is a method called tiny habits. There's other methods as well, but tiny habits is the method for creating habits quickly and easily. So it's a special method um, because who doesn't want to create habits quickly and easily? Mm. And it's like, <laughs> it's, um, surprisingly simple when people you know follow the mistake people sometimes made Ricky is they bring in the old ways of doing things into the tiny habits method it's like no no just follow the tiny habits method as explained and when people do that they're like oh my gosh is it really this easy and it's like yeah it can be this easy so and and it's it's easy and also you can make a significant impact i know you know sort of reading up on your work before our conversation a number of the issues that you're working on are are ones that i happen to be extremely passionate about um and i've spoken about on this podcast before one of them is screen time reduction with smartphones so what yeah. what prompted your interest there oh i think my lab in general you know the kinds of people that come to stanford and especially the kinds of students that take my course and my course is a feeder for my lab. So if I like students, they don't know this, but when they sign up for my course, they're essentially auditioning to be invited to my lab. Mm -hmm. And they tend to want to have positive impact in the world. 
And so something like, how do we uh, move the needle on climate change? How do we help people have a healthier relationship with technology? Recent project, we're looking at how do we get over the herd immunity threshold with vaccination? How do we influence people or design a system to get enough people vaccinated? So we take on you know, another project, helping older adults with depression. All of these have a behavior component. And if you can influence behavior, you can tackle the problems of hopefully climate, that's the most optimistic one, but screen mm -hmm. time and vaccination and depression. And so it's behavior is behavior. And so knowing how to understand and design for behavior, that can be applied all the way from trying to save planet earth to how do you help a teenager not play video games so much, you know, because it's the same set, same way of thinking, the same set of tools because mm. it's behavior. Absolutely. Um, and I want to touch on climate, uh, climate change in a moment, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention to listeners that you actually taught uh, Tristan Harris, who has gone on to be the founder for the Center of uh, Humane Technology and really the spokesperson for ethical design and the platforms that we interface with every day. Yeah, he is. His work before he was famous, uh, <laughs> I really tried to support and guide him and he just didn't know how to, you know, do this professionally because nobody was paying somebody like him. And then with the big TED talk, things really changed for him. And he has become, his thinking is so sophisticated and just so right on. Um, and I'm just really delighted to see the kinds of impacts he's ha he and his colleagues are having in the world. Mm. So when we talk about screen time reduction, um, sort of almost pivoting back to tiny habits, if there are folks listening that want to be involved in this effort, um, is it as simple as sort of like the ABC approach to spending less time on your phone, or is it more of a, a collaborative movement that, that you're engineering? Well, we've tried to take a, like every, every one of my classes I teach at Stanford is on something new and important and something nobody's ever done before. Mm -hmm. um, so this was three years ago. We, in this class, we pulled together all the techniques and all the products and solutions we could find to help people screen time, we ended up with a database about 150. Mm -hmm. So there's not just one way. So to answer your question, there's not just one way. There's mm -hmm. at least 150 different ways. And then on the front end, we built this little genie. It's a, like a little wizard. And the little animated genie will ask you some questions. And then at the end, she will say, here are the ways that you know you should approach this problem. So let's say you go on and say, Oh, it's really about I'm using gaming too much on my mobile phone during work time or something like that. And so then it goes into the algorithm and it draws off the database in the back end, like here are the three things you should try. So anybody can try this. It's at screentime.stanford.edu. So that's available. That's out in the world. Um, and we're publishing some work on that. Dang, as soon as the students write, finish writing it up, that's a whole different story. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it has had positive impact. We haven't scaled it yet, um, but it's there. And the fact that we've collected, aggregated all these tech, it's both techniques and products, like products that you know lock your phone and techniques like change your password or delete Facebook off your phone. So we pulled all of those together. And the problem with having 150 
just in a big database is like, where do I start? So that's why we built the front end to be this wizard that asks you you know, key questions that will narrow down the options and then suggest at least what our algorithm thinks are the best solutions. You said screentime.stanford.edu. Yes. I actually visited the website. I did I exactly what you said. I went through the, the genie and everything um, a couple of weeks back and, and it, it sort of like, like spit out some specific steps that I could take to decrease the amount of time I'm spending on my phone. Cause I think, I think you're going to see more and more of this in, in the next couple of years, especially with the pandemic. I think people are going to um, sort of be more vigilant about um, smartphone use. So I, it's yeah. amazing that you're doing that. And, and I think that's something a lot of listeners are going to relate to. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, all of us can improve our relationship with screens and I think screen time um, it's not that screen time is bad. It's certain kinds of screen time for certain kinds of people in certain contexts are not helping them move forward. Um, but some kinds of screen time are terrific. You know, they're in the right context. Um, so the project is really more about, you know, if somebody feels like screen time is not helping them, then this, this can um, match you with solutions. But even in doing the research, which has gone on for the last year, we've had debates in our, and, and this is during lockdown and COVID. Okay, so if you're listening to this a few years from now, you may have, may not be, but we, we did the screen time research during COVID and it was like, is this the best time to be doing the research or is this the absolutely wrong time to be doing this research? And we've had that debate um, for a while and I still don't know what the answer is. It's kind of both, um, but, you know, technology's here, it's not going away. And the better and better we get at using it appropriately, however people wanted to find that one project in my lab spinning out is called consensual technology, which is going to provide a new lens and framework for looking at what is the role of technology in our lives. Um, and it's not as simple. So one of the things I prescribe is don't use your mobile phone as an alarm clock in your bedroom. Mm -hmm. And that relates to many people, especially young people, just buy a old fashioned alarm clock. It's about 12 bucks, charge your phone somewhere else. And for many people, that very simple shift can help them a lot. But then some things are more complex. I'll give a true example. Uh, my sister texted me this morning and said, oh my gosh, our parents are watching the news all the time. TV news all the time. And we know that's not a good idea. So now it's like, uh, so how do we help our parents? You know, they're on lockdown and, and how do we help them not watch the TV news all the time? Because it's going to be upsetting and depressing. Mm -hmm. So it's not just teenagers playing video games. It's older adults watching TV as well. And those will be, there's not one solution and it will be an ongoing challenge to change our culture all the way down to individual behaviors to help us optimize the role of technology in our lives. Those are, those are amazing insights. Thank you so much. I also love uh, how actionable um, some of the stuff you said was like, for example, keeping the uh, phone in a different room for bed. I was reading a book a couple of years ago, uh, Bored and Brilliant by Manoush Jamarodi. And she talked about how most people, the smartphone is like 10, 20 feet from them at all times, which is just crazy to think about having a little electrical device 
always be almost tethered to our person. So I think that's amazing. Um, that's something that, that I try to do as well. Um, turning uh, briefly to the Climate Action Project. So a few weeks ago, I actually had on the director of the Netflix documentary film, A Life on Our Planet, to talk about climate change. So this is something uh, listeners are, are pr- pretty well aware of, uh, the loss of biodiversity in the rainforest, the oceans. What, what sort of behavioral design work are you doing in that respect? We are trying to go upstream on it and train professionals on how to design interventions that actually work. So we're not saying, here's the behaviors or here are the habits. We're not experts on that. Instead, what we found, and we've run two pilots of this, is that people who are professionals that are designing climate action products and services, those people generally have no training in behavior change. So even though they're doing it professionally 40 plus hours a week, they're really approaching it like amateurs in terms of behavior change. So what we've developed is a curriculum for those people, a curriculum in behavior design that they can do at their own pace that is free to those professionals through Stanford. And our strategy here is by training thousands of professionals that are working in climate action, how to change effectively for behavior change. Mm-hmm then we can have a much bigger impact. So that might be people trying to save the coral reefs in Maui, trying to get plastics out of the school, whatever it is. We had a woman in the pilot that was in charge of the the carbon footprint of Princeton. And that was her job is reduce the carbon footprint of Princeton. And so helping those people understand how to design for behavior change is what this project is about. And people can find it at climateaction.stanford.edu. And it's not just like policymakers or leaders. You're talking about everyday people, what they can do in their homes, you know, what they could do with uh, their food consumption and, and things like that and, and how they can make an impact. Yeah, yeah. And one of my starting points on this is there's a lot of us out there that want to do the right kind of behaviors for the planet, mm-hmm. but we need guidance on what those things are. And so we need more products and programs and experts stepping up and saying, here's what you do. When you visit me on vacation, here are the top 10 things you do to help uh, support the wildlife and um, the environment here on Maui. We don't have that yet. Why don't we have that? I don't know. But just for motivated people like you and me and many listening to this, we just need specific guidance on what to do. And then there's another group of people that may not be so motivated, but if it's easy enough, they will do it, such as buy this kind of sunscreen and not this kind of sunscreen. Mm. And then there's a layer of policy. And with the sunscreen issue that did happen on Maui, where you can no longer sell reef damaging sunscreen here. So you're not now leading it, relying on people to make a choice. The only choice they can make, at least once they get here, are reef friendly sunscreen. So there's different layers here, um, there are some things that will come down to policy. Just it will be policy because our human inclination to take the easiest path often is at odds with the best path for the planet. And in Mm. those cases, policy can be an effective way to get us to not be so lazy because you you can't take the lazy route anymore. You have to do it this way, or maybe there's a penalty. If I'm not such a big fan of the penalty, I'm big on redesigning the environment. You cannot buy reef damaging sunscreen on Maui anymore, but you could last year 
with the law changed and hooray. So I don't have to do a big campaign here. Like don't use this kind, use this kind. Mm. It's you just design out the, the bad options through policy, but we can't do that with everything. So um, I'm sure the carbon footprint at Princeton had a lot to do with um, you know, the kind of water bottles students carry, how they get to class on bikes rather than drive and so on. And in those cases, it's products and programs to help people change their habits to be more eco-friendly. Yeah, and I like the sunscreen example because I think to a lot of people listening who might feel a little powerless in terms of like, oh, this decision is left to the policymakers, the, the regulators. Something that Michael Pollan talks about, I guess, in the field of nu- uh, nutrition is the idea of voting with your wallet. And if you yeah. if you start supporting companies and, and choosing to pay 20 cents extra for a product that's from an you know environmentally responsible company or you know a, a organic locally grown food as opposed to something that's more industrial inorganic eventually you know in, in a capitalist economy most companies are just going to have to follow suit so you know everyday uh, folks listening everyday people can make an impact towards yeah. driving the market to be more responsible in that respect and let me give an example along those lines and it wasn't so much market driven but it was status driven. And here's what it was. It's about 10 years ago. I walk into my lab meeting at Stanford. This was when we were actually meeting in person once a week. Yeah. I walk in and I'm carrying a plastic water bottle. And my students looked at that and looked at me and looked at that. I was like, uh, I forgot what they said, but they made it clear. Like, are you kidding us? You're drinking out of a plastic water bottle. Mm. So I was put on notice. And I never again brought a plastic bottle bottle and I almost never use one unless I absolutely have to. So, so you don't have to wait for somebody in authority. It can go the other way around. My students helped me do what I wanted to do. I was just thoughtlessly, oh, I'm thirsty. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to head to my lab meeting now. Mm-hmm. But they did the right thing and they did it, I guess, gracefully enough. I don't really remember what the words were, but they made it very clear that I was not to consume and put, you know, even putting plastic in the recycling bin that, you know, so I got a reusable water bottle and I use a reusable water every morning when I go surfing, you know, it's just now it's the habit. I wouldn't even think of taking a plastic one out because it just feels so at odds with my identity and who I am. But I really do hand it to my students who just stepped up in that moment and shifted me. That's great. It, it's great when you can sort of be influenced for the better uh, by the people around you. So we touched on a couple of the projects at Behavior Design Lab, um, screen time reduction, climate action. You alluded to vaccination a little earlier. Are there any other large scale behavioral changes that you might be interested in pursuing in the future, BJ? Yeah, generally, we only do three projects at a time in my lab. Right now, we have like four and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, the half is we're working with School of Medicine on helping older, older adults get uh, deal with depression. And that's gone really well. It's essentially they're using a version of tiny habits. And so older adults with mild to moderate depression, uh, the experiment late last year showed that it was effective, um, potentially more effective than medication. We didn't compare that head to head, but the person running the study is a physician. We're replicating that and we will publicize and scale that when the time is right. So that's going great, but that's not a full on lab project. We're assisting the School of Medicine. Um, We did phase one of a vaccination project to help people on the ground 
when I say on the ground, I mean like the practitioners in clinics right. and the people actually hopefully jabbing needles into people's arms, how to help them be more effective in reaching more people. And we're looking toward a phase two of that. And we're bringing a unique way of looking at behavior that the, the vaccination industry and researchers don't have. So that, and then the last one I'll mention is about, we're doing a project on upregulating positive emotions. Mm. So how we wanna create a new framework and we'll do, work on this tomorrow morning in our lab meeting, a new way of understanding the landscape of upreg upregulating positive emotion and then techniques for doing so. Celebration in tiny habits is one technique, but we're gonna explore other techniques. And with that, we hope to eventually have a global solution for anybody anywhere to match themselves, just like Screen Time Genie matches you with how to have a better relationship with technology, to figure out for yourself, how do you upregulate or turn up the volume on positive emotions and how can you do that on demand and reliably? So you're not talking about with, with, um, with like, with any drugs, like agonist antagonist, no. you're talking about just, no. just like through behavior, behavior. behavior. yeah. And, and you, and you guys think that you can actually modify chemical reactions. Like if someone has a dearth of, of serotonin in their synapse, these behaviors can actually alleviate that. Um, I'm going to say a qualified, yes, we're, okay. we're not measuring the chemicals in this kind of research. It would be self-report, okay. uh, as it matures. And if we were involved with a medical school in this project or somebody who does that kind of research, they could actually look at the physiological markers, but for sure, there are techniques you can do to cause yourself to feel happier, to cause yourself to feel more appreciative and so on. For sure. That's true. We're not looking at or measuring the physiological piece because that's a different kind of expertise than what my lab has. But now with my, actually my Stanford lab is being repositioned to be inside the School of Medicine. So now with that repositioning, we may get to measures. So it's the dependent variables, dependent measures that are physiological and not behavioral or self-report. Got you. Got you. That's that of everything you mentioned that that might be uh, one of the most ambitious projects. Just, I mean, climate change is up there as well. Just f finding a way to, to, like you said, upregulate positive emotions. I think a lot of people are struggling right now. Um, and it's something we've talked about on the pod quite a bit yeah. but with, with mental health and depression. So th that could be useful to, to a lot of folks listening. You know, the, the projects, I picked them based on what we're uniquely as a lab suited like to tackle what the students in my lab want to do and what I want to do and something that will make a big impact. So all of the projects we're drawing on those things because we can study anything we want. We can explore anything we want really. Um, and so we might as well try to hit a home run with every single project if not a grand slam. And sometimes the projects don't work and that's okay. It's research. You don't know if, if we knew exactly what was going to happen, then it wouldn't qualify as research. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like tremendous work. And, and, um, honestly in another life, I'd, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be working in the design lab. Join my lab. Join my lab. <laughs> it sounds, it, I mean, it, it sounds incredibly rewarding to be, to be able to work on these projects that are super close to you, um, and impactful in the world. 
So uh, that's that's really cool. To all those listening, Tiny Habits, The Small Habits to Change Everything is available on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. Um, really, really terrific, worth worth the investment. And as BJ said in the back of the book, there are examples of tons of you know tiny habit implementations that you can incorporate into your life. Uh, BJ, I'm sure listeners are, are wondering where they can go to follow you and to learn more about your work in addition to the uh, Stanford Behavioral Design Lab. Uh, BJFogg.com is the broad umbrella for my work. Tinyhabits.com is the tiny habits method. Um, so those are the two main websites. From there, you can get to my Stanford lab and elsewhere. On social channels, eh, I'm not huge on social, but I'm at, you know, it's BJ Fogg, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or now Clubhouse or TikTok. I'm not doing anything on TikTok, but we might. <laughs> so I have a weird name and that allows me to be like BJ Fogg on all channels. So Twitter, is probably where I post the most, even though I'm doing a lot of time on uh, Clubhouse these days because my next class at Stanford is all about how you can use Clubhouse to help people create good habits. Wow. So that's coming up in a month. That's that, that's amazing. And, and can people, because I don't know a lot about Clubhouse, is that open to everyone or do you need a specific invitation? Not yet. It's getting more and more open. Okay. Um, and I think in a month or so when the class launches, it will be effectively anyone can get an invitation and get going it's it's a new way of connecting with people and it offers opportunities that the other social platforms do not and it seems to be especially suited for connections and talking about all sorts of stuff including behavior change it Mm. it already is evolving quite nicely to be a platform to help people optimize their behaviors so we're gonna study that and then um, I'll use this again, turn up the volume yeah. on how Clubhouse can help people um, change their behavior and be happier and healthier. I am definitely going to look out for updates on that. Um, Dr. BJ Fogg, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Ricky. It's been a delight to talk to you. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with BJ Fogg. So a lot of really interesting takeaways. Want to make sure that I cover them all. First thing to mention is the whole concept of an attention economy. I mean, we talked about at the beginning what accounts for the explosion of interest in habits. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that our attention, our time is so in demand in 2021, like never before, right? Like I've mentioned on episodes past, social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook are competing with streaming services and competing with Apple and our smartphones to make sure that they have our attention. Our eyeballs are on their products at all times. And as a result, I think people are very intentional intentional about how they spend their time and and wanting to instill positive routines um, to maximize their efficiency. I think that has something to do with you know all of the um, all the interest in in habit and all the literature on habits that that's been written in the last <clears throat> ten years or so. Something I like about the tiny habits approach relative to um, some of the other approaches we mentioned in our conversation is is that what you're doing is you're not necessarily you know you're not necessarily replacing a routine like you do with with Duhigg's formation. You're taking something that already exists and you're just adding to it. That's the whole after behavior celebration, the ABC, um, and the book. Uh, really drives this point home with some of the specifics. Uh, For example, uh, BJ Fogg mentions, after I brush my teeth, I will floss one tooth. After I pour my morning coffee, I will text my mom. After I start the dishwasher, I will read one sentence from a book. So you're taking these activities that you already do, brushing your teeth, pouring your coffee, starting the dishwasher, and just adding to them. 
right? Just extending, elongating them a little bit. After I sit down on the train, I will open my sketch notebook. After I hear the phone ring, I'll exhale and relax for two seconds. After I walk in my door from work, I will get out my workout clothes. So I, I really find that the reason why the ABC approach is so effective, um, and that definitely for me and for, for others as well, is because it, it doesn't involve replacement. It's just you know extrapolating a routine that already exists. Uh, so definitely recommend that that you you know uh, look into the tiny habits approach and and read the book. Um, we also uh, spent a good amount of time talking about multitasking, which is interesting. It's the idea that there's no such thing as insofar as mental attention is concerned. Um, actually doing two things at once. You're just task switching. You're hitting pause on one video and play on another, so to speak. When you, you know, when, when you go from writing an email, when you're trying to write an email and pay attention in class at the same time, you're not necessarily doing both. You're just stopping with the email and bringing your attention back to class. And then you're stopping with class and you go back to the email. So you're toggling back and forth. And I did a fair amount of research after my conversation with BJ on this. Uh, I, I read a paper called the illusion of multitasking and its positive effect on performance um, out of the University of uh, Pennsylvania back in 2017. And it talked about sort of the distinction between physical and mental attention. Because, for example, in the case of email and work, you can't do both at the same time. You're not paying attention in class and writing email. You're not watching Netflix and talking on the phone. You're toggling back and forth. Yet, when you run and listen to music, you can actually do those at the same time. And something this paper talks about is the bisection between physical and mental attention. So some activities require using physical attention. It's a pattern that's intrinsically built into the rhythm of the human body, like running, like uh, you know, sweeping or vacuuming, like working out at the gym. Anything that you do with your body doesn't demand your mental attention. So you're able to do things at the same time. You're able to listen to a podcast while you cook, as I do. You're able to, to you know, listen to, to, mute, to new music um, while you go on a run. You're able to maybe have a phone conversation uh, while you clean up your apartment. And those are things where you can actually, you know, where your mind can, can almost go on, on multitasking. Uh, but it doesn't work the same when it comes to mental tasks. That that involves a completely different division of activities within the brain. And you know, just to, to just to really drive this point home, I mean, you guys you guys have heard this before, but when you're actually multitasking, when you're when you're actually attempting to write a paper while paying attention to a movie, right? Like that reduces productivity by as much as forty percent. That was a study um, out of uh, Alto University. Um, because the brain works most efficiently when it can focus on a single task for a longer period of time. And changing tasks too frequently interferes with brain activity. Um, and, you know, the, the best, sort of the best um, approach to take is th this paper out of UPenn talks about the 20-minute rule. So instead of constantly switching between tasks, try to devote your full attention to a task for 20 minutes before switching to another. 20 minutes. That's, that's, that's the golden rule. Now, having said that, you know, there are some people that can actually truly multitask. I, I think it's like 2.5% of the population that manage to um, engage their mental attention on multiple things at once. But it's extremely rare. And in most cases, it's just the illusion of multitasking um, that's that's happening. It's not necessarily real multitasking. And if you think you're one of those people in the 2% that can, uh, multi can truly and genuinely multitask, I challenge you to do this. Open up two videos tonight on YouTube side by side. Open up one video on how to, you know, get your puppy to stop biting from a professional trainer and open up another video of someone 
asking people at the age of 100 what their biggest regrets are in life. And at the end of watching those two videos, I want you to type out everything that you remember from those videos. Everything that you remember from those videos because I can promise you, I can promise you that you're going to have a really hard time. That even if you manage to pay attention to those videos while they're playing concurrently, you're going to have a hard time recalling after the fact what what the video, you know, it's it's the brain was just not meant to process that much sensory input simultaneously. So that's all I'll say on on multitasking. And and, um, I do think uh, sort of, um, you know, along the lines of what BJ was saying, you can utilize these strategies to actually bring about large-scale behavior change when it comes to um, screen time reduction, when it comes to vaccination efforts, upregulating positive emotions. I thought that was really cool. if they could have, like he mentioned, I mean, the genie, the genie that that he spoke about for screen time, screentime.stanford.edu is really remarkable that you can just plug in what your issues are, what your relationship with your phone is, and get sort of recommendations. So if they could have that for um, for folks that are, you know, struggling with with sadness or with depression, I think that would be remarkable. So I hope you got a lot out of that conversation with BJ. Um, I know I enjoyed it a lot and, and definitely check out his book as well. So next week is a very special episode. I am going to be sitting down with Eric Berger. He is the author of a brand new book um, called Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days That Launched SpaceX. Um, So I have been an admirer of Elon Musk's for a very long time. Uh, I mean, you know, the man literally founded and, and, um, you know, launched several billion dollar companies, uh, SpaceX, Tesla, The Boring Company, Neuralink. Uh, Solar City, OpenAI, uh, Zip2. He co-founded X.com, which was the precursor to Pay- PayPal, and uh, co-founded uh, Zip2 as well. Uh, and he he's you know really an uh, he's an extraordinary entrepreneur and innovator, and um, really excited to sit, sit down with Eric to talk about how he grew SpaceX from sort of just a pipe dream into a billion-dollar company that sets the standards in the aerospace industry, and also managed to build a rocket that reached orbit which is just uh, so impressive. So so we'll be chatting about all things Elon Musk and SpaceX. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thank you so much for listening. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore, write to the pod on email at Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com and search for full clips and episodes on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast. And remember, next time you're waiting for your morning coffee to get ready, maybe do a couple squats while you wait. Who knows? It might turn into a habit. Take care and stay nervous.